Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. How many of you, show of hands, how many of you have ever swam in a river? Anybody swam in a river before? That's almost everybody. Let me see your hands again if it was the buffalo. How many of you have swam in the buffalo? That's nice. If you haven't swam in the buffalo, you should swim in the buffalo. It's, it's beautiful. The rivers are uh, fun to swim in, but they have their challenges because, you know, because they're strong, because they're rivers, because they are moving. Not too long ago, uh, myself and uh, Bailey, who was up here leading worship just a minute ago, and Pastor David, we went up to the Cadron Creek, which I think is funny that it's called a creek because that looks like a full-grown river to me, all right? And so we went out to that, and it's just north of Greenbrier there, and, and uh, we were kayaking, and there is this certain area, this bend in the river called Gibraltar. Uh, there's this big rock out there called Gibraltar. And if you, you know, you know why. Um, so it's just this giant rock and, and it'll kill you. And uh, I, I went first. I've gone a couple of times. And so I went first and I navigated fine. I didn't lose my kayak. I didn't fall out. Primarily because I got out and walked my kayak around that giant rock. But uh, I was fine. All right. I was perfectly good. And um, then Bailey was behind me. And Bailey, I think this was his first time to kayak. Kayak, all right? And so he was going to paddle this kayak around Gibraltar, which most people don't do. All right. And so I'm ahead of him down river just a little bit there. And I turn around to see Bailey hit that rock and he lost everything. He lost my kayak. He went in the water. He lost my fishing pole. He lost all sorts of things. He was borrowing my kayak. And, uh, and so I'm watching this. And at first he comes up and he's swimming just fine. And I'm down river. So I'm trying to float against the stream and paddle trying to save my kayak, you know, and I was looking for the fishing pole and, and, and anything, any debris, that sort of stuff. And so I'm watching him. And then all of a sudden, I kid you not, Bailey just stops moving. All right. This cold water, it was freezing cold water and it's very fast. He just stops moving and, and he's just kind of like floating there, you know, and I thought he died. I, everything in me thought he froze to death. He just froze to death. And so I'm trying to get over to the edge to get this kayak to just like push the kayaks. And I was going to run upstream, you know, and get him. And I'm screaming, Bailey! you know, at the top of my lungs, Bailey! you know, and then all of a sudden I, I had to scream it three or four times because the, the water was so loud, you know, and uh, scream it three or four times. And all of a sudden Bailey goes, and he just goes back just like this. And I asked him later, I said, what were you doing? And he says, well, it was just too strong. And so I just decided I'm going to float the rest of this river. I'm just going to, and it's another good reason why you should have a life vest on, which he did. And so he took off down that river. And if you're looking at the kayak, if you're looking at me trying to go back up river, if you're looking at Bailey, then you know, we all know that rivers can be tough because they have a stream, Right. They will push you in a direction, in the direction that it wants to go. That's why I always tell people when I take them for the first time to kayak, the river does not love you. The river is trying to kill you. If you go the direction that the river wants you to go, you will die, all right? Because it will push you in a direction that you do not want to go. You have to navigate it, not just float with it. As we begin the book of Daniel, that imagery of this strong, steady, current pushing you in a direction, in the direction that it wants to go is conveyed in at least two ways. 
in at least two ways. The first way is that Daniel and his friends, they are in exile. They are captured and they are literally being dragged across the the Fertile Crescent, over across the Mesopotamia. They are going to a land that they do not want to go, into a culture and a setting and a place that they do not want to go, like a river pushing them. They cannot navigate this. They just simply have to float along with it. So in the first very real way, There's this imagery of a river pushing them along. But then also on a spiritual and a cultural level, Daniel and his friends find themselves being pushed away from God toward a twisted view of power and religion, influence, and control. Today we're going to start Daniel, and I'm excited to start Daniel with you because um, this is actually the 19th book that we as a church have looked at together since I've been the pastor here. 19 books. We have a plan for nine years to go through all 66 books. And so if you've been here for most of that time, we've gone through 19 or 18. We're starting the 19th one. So I'm excited to start a new one. We're going to start in the very best place to start, chapter one. And at this point, really the question is for us, as you're growing, as you are walking this life as a Christian, as a believer— Maybe you're married, you're not married, you're a university student, you're starting off a life or you're wrapping up a child, raising years, whatever it is, whatever stage you are in. I think we can all at times feel as as if life in general, but also culture, uh, the world system is pushing us down this stream and and it's pushing us further away from God. And so the question is, what what do we do in that? How do we stay faithful even though we are being pushed downstream in this strong study? How do we navigate instead of just float? Let me read uh, some verses to you. We're going to begin in verse 3 and we're going down to 8. This is what the Word of God says in Daniel chapter 1. The king, that's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. Now, a eunuch is a castrated male that often uh, uh, worked in the king's court and particularly around the queen. And that was, so he was in that position so that the king could trust him, right? And that word eventually grew into meaning any sort of uh, official, any sort of official in the king's court. So it's not necessarily a eunuch in the first definition of that word. It's just an official. So Nebuchadnezzar ordered Ashpenaz, the chief official, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family. That's Jewish royal families. And from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive and capable of serving in the king's palace. This is the kind of people Nebuchadnezzar wanted Ashpenaz to take from Judah and bring back to Babylon. He was to teach them the Chaldean language, that's what the Babylonians spoke, and their literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. So this is a full-ride scholarship, room, board, tuition, everything taken care of, and at the end of it, you have a job. All right, so that's what's going on with Daniel. It's just not a job or a school you want to go to. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the chief eunuch, gave them names. He gave the, the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Verse 8. This is our final verse, but also the key verse. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission 
from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement. Knowing, God, that we often, almost always, feel as though we are being pushed in directions that we do not want to go. Knowing that our, that our spirit is willing to worship you, but our, but our flesh is weak. God, that in our most sober and aware minds, we can identify that entertainment, social media, general accepted wisdom, God, they are all forces that in the most part push us away from your standards and your ways. God, I pray that we develop a way to A, be aware of it, but B, also navigate it. God, I pray that today we leave here knowing that the simple small steps of faithful obedience are what we do as we worship you. God, I pray that our faith and our trust is in you. Bring to my mouth what my mind has studied. May it be clear. May it communicate your words. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So if you grew up in church or you've seen VeggieTales, you know what's going on in this story. Daniel and his friends are captured. It's not just those four, all right? So there's others. And they are taken to Babylon. It's a two-month journey. They're literally just captured, thrown on a, like a cart, and uh, they're dragged across the desert there to Babylon. In that setting, uh, like I read earlier, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, whatever nation that they conquered, they would go in and take uh, the best and the brightest and the most beautiful. They would pull them out of that and bring them back to Babylon. And there was two reasons for this. The first one is that if you bring back the best and the brightest to your kingdom, then your kingdom is strengthened, right? Now you have these smart young interns all running around and, and they can help out with leading this expanding uh, nation, that sort of thing. So that's the first reason they do that. The second reason that Nebuchadnezzar did this was that the occupied area, right? Judah in this case, if you take out all of its nobility and its royalty and its best and its brightest and its smartest, then you are literally taking out its leadership. You are taking out the threat of an uprising. If you remove all of that, then you have lessened the effect of, uh, you know, somebody rising up of some sort of coup. So in two ways, you've really kind of strengthened out uh, what's going on. And as part of that process, those who are brought are brought back to total immersion. They are indoctrinated. Look at all the ways that they're, obviously their house, right? Their home. They no longer live in Judah. They now live in this other place. Their identity, Daniel is no longer called Daniel. He is called Belteshazzar. Their culture, their politics, their religion, they're all replaced with these foreign alternatives. Every aspect of Daniel's life is being ripped away from him and Hananiah, Mishael, and Abednego, they're all being ripped away from them and given this brand new culture, a complete and a total indoctrination. And one note that we need to really make sure that we are picking up and we're carrying with us today is that this still happens. This is happening. This is happening. And, and uh, Satan and the world and the general accepted culture of our time, that if you are not actively seeking the ways of God, then you are being pushed in a direction away from God. God has a standard. God has a way. And yet we are so naive as to not pay attention to the way that we are being forced towards an anti-God view about things like identity, right? I mean, the way that we identify as ourselves and, and other people, uh, family and what God defines as a family and what we now define as families, uh, the worth of a human and value, sexuality and romance, wisdom and the pursuit of good things or our purpose in life. Every aspect of your life 
is being pushed in a direction that is actually anti to God. Now that's not to say that there are not redeemable qualities of any culture. There are. However, the broad strokes of any culture are going to push you away. And so we need to be aware and awake. We need to not be asleep. We need to not simply float, but instead to navigate. Here's another side note, and I think this is interesting given that what we studied last week. That you notice how Nebuchadnezzar only goes after, like he goes into a community and he goes after those with high test scores and symmetrical faces, right? He's only going after the most beautiful and the brightest or the smartest. This goes in direct contrast to what we talked about last week, where the value of a human, the value of you and the value of everyone in this room and every person who has ever lived is in the reality that you were, you were artistically created by God, that you were fashioned by God for a purpose. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't care about that value. What he cares about instead is the best, the brightest, and the most beautiful. So anytime you are in any setting in which anyone is obsessed with the outside appearance of either themselves or another person, or they reduce people down to some sort of utilitarian purpose, then that is actually evil and it is against God. It is actually evil and it's against God. And so even in this side note where Nebuchadnezzar is bringing those, and even though it's logical, in military and in national conquest, it is anti-God. That's what's going on in this story. So in that setup, in that cultural river, David, or Daniel rather, Daniel makes a stand. He takes a stand. He decides that he's going to follow God's instruction as opposed to the instruction of this evil godless king, this pagan king. So what is that particular point? Now, it's not comical, but I find it to be funny. Listen, in, in verse 8, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food. With the king's food. So, and that, like, carry along with the story. Moving him, Daniel's okay with that. I mean, he didn't have a choice, but, you know, moving him, that sort of stuff. Change what you wear. Daniel's all right with that. Hey, Daniel, you're now called Belteshazzar. Like, what, what a name, right? You're now called Belteshazzar. We're going to change your major in college. Here's your new job. Here's what you're going to do. All of that, Daniel's like, fine, whatever, you know, that sort of stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, Daniel, you have to eat this. And he's like, that's a line too far. You are not changing my food. I will eat what I want to eat. It reminds me of my wife a little bit, you know, because, you know, uh, to quote Meatloaf, she will do anything for love, but she will not do that, right? Change her food. If, unless there's Tex-Mex on the menu, um, she's just not going. That's just the way that it goes. But for Daniel, it was deeper than flour tortillas and fajita chicken. In Leviticus 7, in Leviticus 7, God tells the children of Israel, he tells the Jews that they have these standards for what they eat. And it really breaks down. There's a ton of rules there, but it really breaks down into two classifications. One is worship and the other one is dietary. There's a lot of it that God told uh, the, the Israelis to not eat or to eat because it was just healthy, because it was good for them, that sort of stuff. This dietary stuff. There's also these worship laws in which they would, uh, you know, the, the pagan cultures would take a portion of the food and say like maybe a portion of their drink and they would pour it out to the God of whatever. And that was essentially uh, turning the whole glass of whatever into worship. And so as you drink that, you are worshiping that God. 
Or they would take a, a piece of steak, let's say, and they cut off a section of it, and they would just light that on fire and let it burn to a crisp, and that was sacrificing that portion to that God. So as you eat the rest of the steak, then you are participating in that worship to that God. Or they would simply pray over it and offer it to the God symbolically and then eat it. And you know, that's not just pagan cultures. We do that, right? We bless the food. We bless the food and, and, and recognize that we are giving thanks to the God who provided it for us. So when you pray over your food and then ingest that food as the good and the gracious gift from God it is, then you are worshiping God. And so in that level, Daniel is saying, I'm not going to participate in this worship to this king. It wasn't, we know that it wasn't necessarily on the dietary side of things, like they were eating, um, the Babylonians would eat horse flesh and uh, the Jews were not allowed to do that. So it wasn't necessarily that, although, I mean, I'm out on that too. It wasn't that, but because there's no dietary laws against the alcohol, the wine. And so it had to be the worship situation as opposed to the dietary situation. I think there's another level to this as well. The name, the clothing, the home address, all of that sort of stuff, what he does for a living, when he's reading this literature, all of that sort of stuff is on the outside of Daniel. But Daniel recognizes that what goes inside a person changes the person. So in a spiritual worshipful way, you see Jesus kind of conflicted with this as well when he's in the New Testament and he didn't wash his hands before he ate and they got really mad about that. You could see that the Jews believed that what went on the inside. And so Daniel is making a stance here to say that I am a Yahweh follower from the inside out. It's not just simply something I do. I am convicted. I do this. This is part of who I am. This is my culture. And so it seems that when it came to this line of worshiping God, Daniel and his friends are just not going to cross that line. From the inside out, he is a follower of Yahweh. And making that stance is good. And we all applaud him for that stance. We think that's a good stance. And that's something that you should follow. But what, think about it just for a second if you or I was confronted with this option. There's a bunch of good reasons not to take that stance, right? Like, first of all, um, he's in a different culture. Maybe they'll kill you if you don't eat this food, right? I don't know. You don't know. Daniel didn't know, but he's making, he made a determination. He's not going to eat this food. Maybe they'll kill you. So there's a good one, just the fear of the unknown. Another one is from verse 15. If you scroll down and look at verse 15, it says that everyone else in the program ate the food. Everyone, including the other Jews who knew the Levitical law. So there's sort of like a peer pressure situation going on. Maybe they'll kill you. Everybody else is doing it. The other thing that I thought about was that the king's food is probably the best of the food. This isn't vending machine stuff. This isn't like a hot pocket. This is like really good stuff. This is the best. This is from the king's table. And so just on the idea of Daniel looking, David, Daniel looking at that and saying it's desirable for the eyes and desirable to eat, that would be something that he would want to do, that he would take from the king's food. I think there's another fourth one here that would maybe seep up within our hearts this little root, this little seed of bitterness towards God, right? You've been worshiping God your whole life. All of a sudden, this enemy, foreign, um, idolatrous king raids your kingdom, raids your town, topples your building, takes you and your friends and, and takes you two months away to Babylon. And you might look up and go, I'm not following God's rules God hasn't been good to me. Why would I follow God's rules? See, there's all of these reasons that maybe you and I would sit down at a table and think, I don't know, maybe, 
maybe he has some good reasons not to take a stand. And yet, even in the face of all of those reasons, which are the same sort of reasons that, that you and I face when we're making decisions to follow God, even in the face of a bunch of good reasons, Daniel is faithful. Daniel is faithful. Listen, this is, this is something that has been key in my walk with Christ. This is something key that, to remember. We can justify every sin that we commit. You can justify every wrong thing that you've ever done. That's why you did it. You have some sort of justification for it. The reason that that's so powerful to me is to remind me that my justification isn't good enough to allow me to do something that God has told me not to do. We can justify anything. So coming up with a good reason like, well, they might kill me or everybody else is doing it or it looks really good. Coming up with a good reason is not a good enough reason to reject God and his instruction in your life. So what do you do when you have to make that sort of stance? Well, let's look at the game plan. The first thing that we notice right out the gate is that Daniel and his friends knew what was right. I, I think we would be hard-pressed to find 10 people in the room that could actually go to uh, or, or like spit out the Levitical dietary laws. Anybody in here just like, oh, I got them all memorized. Here's my favorite one. Like, don't eat horse, horse flesh or something like that. No, I mean, you don't know those things, right? We don't know those things. Those dietary, but Daniel and them did. They knew before they ever showed up in Babylon, they knew exactly what the laws were. They knew exactly what God expected of them. They knew exactly what were expected of them. And they knew there were no provisions. This is what God said, eat. This is what he said, don't eat. And I ain't going to eat it. There are no exceptions to the rule. It reminds me of how people justify speeding. You ever been around somebody that's speeding and they're like, well, I'm just going with the flow of traffic, you know? Because, you know, there's small print on the speed limit sign that says, this is what the law requires. Unless everybody else is going that, then you're, oh, it's allowed. You know, it's fine. Or unless you're in the far left lane, and then it says in small print, it says, then you can just tailgate somebody and, and get mad at them because they are going the speed limit and you're not. You know, that sort of thing. You know, there's provisions there. Daniel knew there is no provisions in the word of God. This is what God expects. So do it. Secondly, not only does he know what is right before he gets into that thing, verse 8, again, Daniel determined that he would not. This idea of determined, if you have the King James Version, it says purposed in his heart. He made an internal decision before he got to the spot. He decided before it got bad, he decided what he would do before he had the option to do it. When I was growing up, this was the favorite verse um, that whenever we were at camp, student camp, uh, for church, they would always, there's this one night where they divided the boys and the girls out and we had to, we had to talk about the other ones. And uh, this was the verse, right? You need to decide before you're with her what you are going to do. My favorite way to say that is you need to decide to keep cool before it heats up, all right? Because when it heats up, there's no going back, right? And so you have to determine in your heart, make a decision before you face the obstacle that you are going to do what God asked you to do. You're going to be honest. You're going to be right. Those sort of things. Look at verse 8 again. So he asked permission. I love that. Right? Look at, isn't Daniel such a decent, polite young man, right? You would think that there is very much of an opportunity here for, for him to reject the authority along with the food, but he doesn't. Daniel respects the authority that he is placed under by God's providence, which by the way, spoiler alert, that's the whole point of the entire book. 
that God is the ultimate authority in all situations and all circumstances. So anybody can call themselves king if they want to, but God is actually the king. And so in bad authority, Daniel shows respect. He shows decency. He doesn't flip over the tables and yell at everybody. I'm not eating this idolatry food and my real God's going to kill all of you and your fake gods, those sort of things. He is decent. He is honorable. He is right. The other thing, I think this is the fourth part of the strategy. So you know what God says. You read your Bible. You understand what God says. You determine that you will follow it. You are respectful to bad authority and all authority. And then fourth, he worked hard in his preparation. Remember, this is a three-year program. It says right there in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, that he was going to be trained for three years. And then in verse 19, which I didn't read, at the end of this whole program, the king interviewed them. And among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel. Daniel and his friends were top of the class. Honors, recognition, all of that sort of stuff. So here's what I'm really trying to point out. His food had some effect on that, right? If you eat a bunch of junk all the way through college, you're not going to do as well, you know? But if you eat healthy and you work out a little bit, you'll do even better. We all know that. That's the way that life works. But if you eat a bunch of good food and you don't study and you don't go to class, you're going to fail, all right? That's just how that works. And so what we see here is that Daniel not only followed God's provisions, he followed his law, he ate well, but he also studied. Any of y'all ever tried to learn another language? Anybody ever learn another language? It's hard. You ever try to learn another language and the historical literature of another culture so that you could advise the king at the end of three years exactly what he should do according to their laws? That seems way harder than Duolingo, right? I mean, that's a little bit tougher. That's going to go down. And you got to learn that other literature in their language away from your mama and your food and the town that you know. He did well. He worked hard. In other words, what I'm really trying to drive at is this. Don't use what God expects of good Christians as an excuse to be a bad human. Don't use what God expects of good Christians as an excuse to be a bad human. You might see this in a marriage where one spouse is just really mean and, and petty towards the other one. And then in counseling, um, they will say to the other person, well, God says that you're supposed to love me. Well, then be lovable, all right? Be kind. God says that too, all right? Love each other. You might see this in a church member that never shows up and doesn't serve and doesn't contribute, but when something goes bad in their life, they expect their whole small group to come running. There's two sides of that. You might see this in a student that is well known for not participating in the party crowd because they're a Christian, right? They're going to go parties. That's, that's for evil people. They're a Christian, but then they treat those people with ridicule and disdain. They're unkind to those people. That's not Christian either. You can see this in a person that would never spend a dime on a drop of alcohol or a rated R movie, but has also never spent a dime on caring for the poor and the powerless. You see, don't use those excuses. Daniel could have easily become bitter and mean and pulled away from his responsibilities, rejected the authority as well as the food, but he didn't. He honors God in his convictions, both personally and relationally. We have to remind ourselves that even as Daniel honors God in what he does and the way that he behaves himself, that it is ultimately to God's credits that Daniel and his friends do well. You can see that in the text. You can see it in two spots particularly. Look at verse 9. And God granted Daniel kindness and compassion with the chief eunuch. So as Daniel was faithful in his job, as Daniel was faithful and honorable and respectful, 
faithful in his work. God granted him favor. God blessed him with the favor of his boss. Man, can we be honest? Like, our world, everybody, not, not just non-Christians, Christians as well, we are obsessed with the idea of being a victim. Like everybody's looking for some reason to be a victim. Like they're always trying to be a victim of something. And sometimes on the Christian side of things, I hear people say that they're being persecuted. You know, they're, they're at work and, and their boss doesn't like them because their boss is not a, a believer and stuff. And when you get to know that person, their boss, it has nothing to do with their Christian faith. It has everything to do with the, they're, they're lazy and unkind and rude. Sometimes you're not, you're not being persecuted for your faith if you're not actually living out your faith. You're also not being persecuted for your faith if somebody just doesn't like you. Daniel is kind and he is decent and he is respectable and God grants him, God blesses that good work. Look at the next part there. It says that God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. See, there's two sides of it. You have to study. You have to work hard. You have to do your job well. You have to develop the skills to weld and, and, and to program and, and to develop. You have to, you have to develop the skills as a nurse and, and compassion and bedside manner. You have to develop the skills to teach and to, and to bring complex theories and ideas down to certain levels and to communicate it in a certain way and to manage your money and to manage your company's money and assets and resources and, and personnel. You have to develop all those sort of skills, but we have to know that it is God's blessing on us that we have that ability or that disposition in the first place. That we are actually worshiping God by doing a good job with the position and the place that he has given us. In every aspect of your life, in every relationship, it is worship to God that you do that the very best that you can. And that is what God honors. Humility is of the utmost importance It is the start of worship. We need to acknowledge and recognize that even when we are successful in our Christian walk or whatever the endeavor that we have undertaken, that God is the force working in and through us. It's not your own skill alone, but God who gave you that skill. Trusting God is the first and the constant step in a Christian worship. Switch just a little bit here. Listen, one of the reasons that you get so frustrated with Christianity or your faith that you find it exhausting is that we've put this obedience to God on the wrong side of the equation. We think that being obedient to God, like checking off all the boxes, um, abstaining from all the things that you're not supposed to do, you know, and reading your Bible at least five, five times a week, right? You know, doing that and praying sometimes, at least over your food, showing up to church every now and again, those sort of things, we find that so exhausting because we feel like if we do those things, then God will love me. Then he will accept me. And if I keep doing those things, he will continue to love me. And you know what you're doing? You're trying to swim upstream. It's like swimming upstream and you are going to wear yourself out. You can maybe hold your position against that current for a little bit, but the stream is too big. You get into a creek, you can swim for a little bit, but listen, we're not in a creek. We're in the Mississippi. You're not swimming against that thing. What you need to do instead of trying to do this on your own, instead of trying to swim upstream, is you need to just put your faith and trust in a God who walks on water. He's not being pushed back by this. I put my faith and my trust in Jesus. He's the one who's going to carry me through this. And so in response to that, 
I honor him by praying and reading my Bible and giving sacrificially and loving other people and forgiving and and being a good steward of my body and of my job, those sort of things. So my invitation to you, my my, uh, plea for you is if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, stop swimming upstream and trust in Jesus. So what are the practical areas of this? What is the where this lands in our life? Here's the deal. There is no insignificant small steps when it comes to faithfulness. No little thing like not eating the food. No little faithfulness is insignificant. God is not asking you to do busy work. When God sets a standard and we do it, there's none of that that is insignificant. All of it is worship. All of it is worship in our lives. Notice this. I think this is really key. And this is something that's really uh, um, encouraged me this week. You know about Daniel. I'm talking about Daniel. Daniel is one of the heroes of our faith, not because he's good looking and he did a good job. We know that those are situations there. We, we don't know Daniel because he was, he was successful in the king's court. And it's not even those crazy circumstances that Daniel finds himself in. The two-month journey, the, the exile from his home, this learning this new culture. It's not all of that. It's not even the circumstances that he's going to face with lions and execution and crazy dreams and all that sort of stuff. We know Daniel not because of those things. Those are the backdrop to which Daniel was just faithful He was just simply faithful. He did what he was supposed to do and he didn't do what he was not supposed to do. It's not about the extremes in your life. And it's not about whatever circumstances are coming up in your life. It's just that you take small, simple, consistent, faithful, obedient steps every day, every week. Those small things that you you think are of no consequence— They matter. So what are these areas? Are you faithful in your relationships? Like in your marriage? In your friendships? Are you faithful in a way that you can be trusted? Trusted in your actions? In what they say to you, you will hold with with value? That if they open their hearts to you, that you will will be kind and you will be supportive in those levels if they tell you things that are are, um, uh, weighty? that you will hold those things, that they can trust you? Are you faithful in that way? Are you faithful to your spouse and the way that you communicate to people outside of your marriage? Little small things, like you do not need to be social media friends with your exes. You don't have to be that. Are you faithful in those small little steps? Are you faithful to yourself? You know that you should eat a little less of this or that, walk a little more here or there, take the steps. Are you faithful in stewarding what God has given you? Are you faithful in those small things? Are you faithful in your relationships? Are you faithful to yourself? Are you faithful, are you faithful to God? Like you can be in church for like a minute and a half and you've probably picked up the idea that you're supposed to read your Bible and pray, right? Everybody knows that. We're all supposed to do that. We're supposed to read our Bibles and pray. And I'll have people say, yeah, but pastor, listen, I tried to pray, but I keep falling asleep. I was praying, but I fell asleep. And, and, and to you, I want to say, maybe if you weren't in your bed with the lights off and the covers up around your neck, you wouldn't fall asleep, you know? Maybe like, get out of bed. <laughs> like, go sit in a chair. Go sit in the bar stool at the counter in the kitchen, you know? If you can fall asleep in there, you've you got a medical condition, you know? Go see somebody. <laughs> Pray at the counter. 
I don't know what it is. Stand up. Do something different to be faithful in your step. Or like reading your Bible. A plan works. For some people, just having a plan, something to check through, that's good. For other people, it's the experience. And I'll be honest with you, for me, it's the experience. Like plans, I love those. I've gone through lots of those. But for me, it's really the experience. Every morning, six o'clock, make my Cuban coffee and my Cuban wife. She sits over here and I sit right here and the light's going. And now that it's cold, we turn on the fire and I read my Bible every morning. I love the whole experience. I look forward to that whole thing every morning. And so whatever it is, if it's the experience, if it's the plan, whatever it is, do what it takes to be faithful. Are you, are you faithful in your relationships to yourself, to your God? Are you faithful to your church? You know, we are not a club. We are not a service. We are a faith family. And when you join a faith family, when you commit to a faith family, you make commitments. You say, I will be here. I'll show up. I'll step in. I'll give. I'll contribute. I'll serve. It's a very basic, simple commitment to one another. Why? Because we believe that what that says is that we are participating in the mission of God. And so I'm going to be here. I'm going to give what I can give financially. I'm going to serve where I can serve be real honest with you, and I even debated on whether or not I was going to say this during this service because uh, it's broadcast online. And uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon, it's played on Conway Corp. And uh, so just shout out to those of you who are watching at three o'clock. I got a card this week and I, we love you too. All right. So I debated about saying, because to be honest with you, in my seat, it's a little embarrassing, but I'll just go ahead and share it with you anyways. Last week, we went to one service on both campuses here and in Greenbrier. And it wasn't because of the terrible, you know, life-threatening snow that we received, all right? That, that wasn't it, all right? It also wasn't necessarily because of COVID. We did have a number of people who uh, contracted the illness, but we had even more people who were not sick, had no symptoms, but they had to quarantine for different reasons and stuff like that. So, so that did hit us to some degree, but it wasn't the weather and it wasn't COVID. I'll tell you what it was. We didn't have enough volunteers. We didn't have enough people to have church multiple times. So we just came together in a worship service with no children's ministry because we didn't have enough to cover it. Now I'm saying that we have great and faithful volunteers, but they're like serving every single week, every single week. And then when they go down because they have to quarantine or something like that, we're just stuck. Listen, it takes 160 individuals to make a Sunday morning run here on both campuses, 160. It sounds like a lot, but we run 1,100 people and we didn't have enough to cover it. So the question is, are you faithful? Many are, many are, but some I think have to answer that question for themselves. Are you faithful in your relationships, in your person? Are you faithful in your walk with your God? Are you faithful in your church? It's very simple, small intentional steps of obedience. There are no insignificant faithful steps with God. It's all has a purpose and a plan. Uh, I wanted to show you something here, if I can get it out of my pocket. Y'all see this? See that, isn't it pretty? It's really neat. Um, I really like the color and the shape and all that. Y'all see that? Of course you don't, it's tiny. I'm just joking, nobody can see that. It's a little piece of glass and I think it's yellow. Um, uh, LaDonna thinks it's brown. Jackie thinks it's brown. I think it's yellow, lello, or maybe orange or something like that. Um, just depends on the angle that you're looking at it. Um, but it's, 
it's trash, all right? To be honest, it's just a little piece of glass. And if you look at different, I don't even know what shape it is. It's kind of like a triangle, but kind of not. There's a point on one side, there's a swerve on the other side. If you saw this in your house, if you saw this, if you walked in and this was laying in the kitchen, you might say the words, what? You'd be like, be careful. You know, that kind of stuff. Like, this is what moms do. They're going to protect you from the glass that's about to attack you. You know, that kind of stuff. Be careful, there's glass. That's what everybody says, you know. And so if there was glass there, and then you'd sweep it up real carefully, and you'd toss it away. You know why? Because it's trash. It's insignificant. You can't do anything with this other than maybe get hurt by it or something. And so because it has no consequence, because it has no value, then you just throw it away. It does not matter. Except for, look at this. This is what's called the glory window. And it's in a chapel called the Thanksgiving Chapel. In fact, you are looking up at it. In both images, you're looking up at it. It's this big stained glass window that spirals upward. And so from both of these perspectives, you're standing in the middle of the chapel looking straight up. 73 panels of countless pieces of trash. Things of insignificant value. The window is called the glory window because it is based on or inspired by Psalm 19, which starts with the heavens declare the glory of God. So this is like uh, your obedient, faithful actions in your life. Every one of them seems so insignificant. Like it doesn't matter. Like, you know, it doesn't matter if I go to church. It's just one little thing. What if I, if I, if I only read like three verses, what difference does it make? Does God care if I only read three verses? So if I only pray, if I forgive this one person, I only told that one secret and lost their trust. These tiny little insignificant, being with your church, giving sacrificially, reading your Bible, honoring trust, taking the stairs. These are small things all by themselves. They seem like nothing of no consequence, but together, with God's light shining through, they are a beautiful image of what only God can do. They declare the glory of God. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.